As much as I am fascinated with the stereotypical narcissistic serial killer, it's the unsuspecting, truly friendly person next door who you smile and wave to as you pass by that are the scariest. They are the ones who hide in plain sight, the ones who don't get caught because no one suspects that they could do anything like that. It's the ones you don't know whom you should fear. Brianna Joy. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee Esses. Pause on the episode while we do a little bit of self-promotion here. Shameless plug. Shameless plugs. Yay. Both of us are releasing our books tomorrow. Yes. So if you wanted to find out if we practice what we preach... All of the stuff we talk about, all of the advice we give, if we are writing selfishly, you can see the difference if you wanted to check out our books. So you can find mine. It's called Toxic. It's on Amazon. You'll probably want to search Toxic Lee Hole. And if you search Lee S's, you can find my entire bookshelf on Amazon as well. Or you can just go to our websites, our Facebook pages. We've got links all over the place for where you can go find our books. And for those listening a little bit later, today is Halloween 2020, and I'm so excited. I love Halloween. We are thrilled. This has been sort of a wish list series in that we've covered all my favorite kinds of monsters, and now we get to cover Lee's favorite monster. Mankind. Because honestly, the worst things that people can do are the worst monstrous things I've ever seen. Humans are scary in that they're real. Yes, unicorns can be fanciful and out there and Cthulhu can be fun to wear as a hat and all of that. But people never underestimate not only their cruelty, but their imagination, which is a fun combination to write for the record. Before we get into real life monsters, let's talk about monster humans in fiction. And this isn't always bad, scary, serial killer kind of monsters. The first category is the monsters that change the self. This is your Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And Bruce Banner, I believe, was sort of based off of the Jekyll and Hyde type, where you had the sophisticated intellectual and the monstrous feral trying to destroy everything. And I love this dichotomy within one person because they are constantly battling for control, battling for which is going to be more important, the survival of self or the survival of mankind. Another fictional character that falls into this category is Dorian Gray, who was a little bit like Narcissus in that he was very proud and had a portrait done of himself. And it aged instead of him. So when at first he just loved this painting, he grew to hate it because it showed all of the terrible, ugly things about him until he eventually stashed it in the attic and killed people because he was a terrible person. This next one kind of fits in this category, kind of floats out in the nether. And this is your witches. And this is more of your... Classic fairy tale Hansel and Gretel witch, not your good witches. We're not necessarily talking about modern day Wiccan type people. We're talking about the hag in the woods. The ones who like to eat children. A lot of your fairy tale witches were usually once something better. 
their involvement in whatever practices changed them into something different. You see this with uh, Snow White, the stepmother, especially in the Disney version. Yes, she casts a spell to physically change herself, but that's also really representative of that character's decline. So if you ask Dean Winchester what the scariest monster he's ever fought is, he will always say humans, and especially he does not like witches. And other monsters that Dean Winchester has fought are the next category. These are the once humans. They used to be human and have become something else permanently. One of my favorites is the Native American story of the Wendigo, or the Wendigo which was basically a human who was caught in a winter storm and reverted to cannibalism, and that turned him into a monster. I believe a lot of the name comes from being driven mad by the winds, but they eventually become an inhuman thing, something that's faster, something that's scared of light, something that's no longer recognizable as a person. You also have creatures like the werewolves, were-creatures, who... Something usually traumatic happens to them, like a bite, and they then are inflicted with lycanthropy. And you'll see some variation of this in a lot of the North and South American traditions and stories of turning into bug people. And sometimes it's against their will, sometimes it's not. It's an intelligence that has reverted to something feral. This is also a very common theme in Greek and Roman mythology. The gods would curse people with changing into something else because they offended them somehow. The goddess Athena cursed Arachne because she was a better weaver than her. And that's how we get the name Arachnids for spiders, because she was changed into a spider. Grasshopper is a similar story where an immortal fell in love with a mortal and the gods said, okay, we'll make him immortal, but they forgot to also make him unaging. So he just got older and older and older until he became a grasshopper, because that makes perfect sense. And that's also the base form for the word for werewolves and were-creatures lycanthropy. Zeus cursed the king Lycaon and turned him into a wolf, and that's how we got lycanthropy werewolves in that storyline. Yeah, if you ever want to learn about the history of any of the monsters that we have forgotten this last month, then a great way to figure out where the story comes from is the etymology. Now let's get into the real life monsters. And I'm so excited for this because I am a true crime fanatic, but I do want to warn you before we get into this, this may not be for young listeners. Some of the details may be a little bit more graphic, a little bit more sensitive, because we are talking about real-life killers, actual people who have done horrible, terrible, terrible things. It also, a lot of what we're talking about, has strong links to long-term mental illness. When we talk about this, we're not saying that everybody with that illness is going to be a serial killer. It is just traces in there. So we'll dive into that a little bit more when we get to those specific cases. If you have young listeners or if you are sensitive when it comes to talking about murder, now is a good time to turn it down. Right. Selfishly, we'll see you on Monday. So let's go back in time. The term serial killer didn't become a thing until the 70s, but there have been serial killers long before that. And we're not going back super far, but the first one I want to talk about is Elizabeth Bathory. 
We are talking about the 16th century into the early 17th century. Uh, She lived from 1560 until 1614, so that's about Shakespearean time. She was a Hungarian countess who was accused of kidnapping, torturing, and murdering girls usually between the age of 10 and 14. Some of the story surrounding her is that she drained them of their blood and then took baths in that blood in order to stay young and beautiful herself. And she particularly loved to drink the blood of virgins to maintain her youth. One of the stipulations I'm going to put on this story, because that is wonderfully, beautifully dark and such a good story, but it might just be a story. Elizabeth Bathory did exist. She was a countess and she was accused of these things. But there's a question about whether she actually committed these atrocities because there were several high nobility who owed her a lot of money, including the king who ordered the investigation into the rumors. If the king owes you a bunch of money, there's a fair chance that rumors to stifle you in your power will come up. And a great way to do that is, of course, accusing someone of being a serial killer. Especially a woman in power like this back in that age. Very easy to be like, oh, she's crazy, kills people, bathes in their blood. But this was a time, especially in Hungary, where the nobility had all power. So if she was kidnapping or having peasant girls kidnapped, nobody would really be able to do anything about it. So that's not too outlandish that she had them kidnapped and tortured and killed. It's more outlandish that she bathed in their blood. For the record, they did have about 300 people standing up as witnesses against her on this. Just saying. (laughs) I mean that she's guilty. Hang her. Which I believe she died in prison, right? Something like that. I, I don't know if she was hanged, guillotined. She was detained in the castle for the rest of her life. So she died under house arrest. She was bricked in. I remember that. The story that I I read about her, she was placed under house arrest, but it was such a severe house arrest that they basically bricked her into her room and left only a small slit for, you know, passing food and stuff in and out. So again, that name is Elizabeth Bathory. If you wanted to look her up and write a story about her, let us know because I would love to read it. Let's move on to the next step in the timeline. This is going to be the Coffin King. This is another one of those dying of being buried alive kind of stories, but sounds like he kind of deserved it. Yes, he did. Then again, his life was kind of tragic. He still deserved it. Not disagreeing there. So this is Crown Prince Sato of Korea in the mid-1700s. Anybody he had power over, he loved to make them hate themselves. So he would consistently beat his servants, his concubines, killed many of them. You know, there were stories that said they were carting bodies, several bodies out a day kind of thing. And he even said that he liked to take his anger out on other people. And then his older brother died and he became next in line for the throne. Which was a big problem for the king because he saw his son basically be crazy knew he would be a terrible king, and said something needs to be done about this because he cannot be the next king. His mother actually suggested to the father before she died how to kill Crown Prince Sato. She suggested to use the laws in their favor 
Because he was a crown prince, he could not be executed without also executing the wife and the son. So this posed a bit of a problem for the royal family. Obviously, this dude can't be king, but we can't kill him. I would have maybe thought to, okay, make him like an emissary to some far off dangerous place, send him to Antarctica, and then if he survives and comes back, then sure, maybe he'll have learned his lesson, he can be king. But mom and wife and dad had a different idea in mind. They charged him with the murder and torture of his servants and all those people and had him placed in a wooden box. Keep in mind, he's 27 at the time. They put him in a rice chest and he was ordered to die of starvation. Therefore, it would be the gods who killed him and not a person. He died technically of somewhat natural causes. Now we get to talk about one of Lee's favorite serial killers. H.H. Holmes. So this is during the World's Fair in Chicago. So we've jumped forward another 150 years or so. And H.H. Holmes is the name he was known by at the time, I believe. It wasn't his actual name. But he, under, I believe it was his uncle's inheritance, built a murder house. So we're talking pipes that lead to the different rooms that guests would sleep in so he could suffocate them in their sleep. He had this basement with like Sweeney Todd style carnage. He had built special shoots in different places. He had several different crews build the place so that no one person knew exactly how it was fully structured except for him. And he designed a lot of it. So he built this murder house as a an Airbnb, effectively. People would come for the World's Fair. He'd slaughter a bunch of them while they were basically traveling. If there was ever going to be a house that is haunted, it is going to be the house of H.H. Holmes. So he was finally caught when he attempted to use a corpse in an insurance scam. And they found over 200 victims on his property, reportedly. He confessed saying, quote, I was born with the devil in me. However, he confessed to only 27 crimes and he was charged with one. And that's what led to him being given the death penalty. This is one of those people that I would love to get into their mind for just a moment to see what makes them tick. What is it that drives them to do those things? In a similar spot are the Bloody Benders. They were a quote-unquote family of last name Bender. And I believe it was Oklahoma where travelers would pass through and they'd stay at their inn for the night. One of the daughters would be a fortune teller, seances, that kind of stuff, while everyone just sort of pickpocketed the person while they're distracted. And occasionally they'd kill the person if they got caught. Or if the person was particularly lonely, like if they could tell that they didn't have a lot of attachments and nobody would be looking for them, then they would choose that person to kill. The town nearby eventually, with the help of a stranger who was looking for his brother, came along and basically drove them out and they dispersed. I think they found something like several hundred sets of glasses in the orchard that was behind the house. That was where they dispersed a lot of the body parts. Dad and son were caught at one point, and then mother and daughter were caught a little bit later. 
So if you lived in the 1800s, don't stay at random people's houses. You might get murdered. So we're going to go a little bit further south and a little bit back in time to Mad Madame Lalaurie of New Orleans. Mad Madame Lalaurie was a slave owner and liked to make a show of her power and her opulence. So she would make sure all of her slaves dressed beautifully whenever there were guests around and they would all be forced to say, yes, I love working for her and all of this and that. But she had an attic where she performed experiments on her slaves, breaking their bones in weird places and setting them again. It was found when firefighters were called to a fire at her mansion, they smashed through the padlocked attic door and located the remains of the mutilated slaves. One of the slaves was said to have been broken all of her bones backwards, so she had to crab walk upside down, and she ran at the investigators screaming. This is just apocryphal, but it's a great image to have this weirdly broken person skittering across the attic floor towards someone who's there to rescue them. Absolutely horrifying. And again, what in their brain makes them want to do this? So let's jump to the early 1900s. This was a time when you didn't have to have a certificate to be a healthcare worker. You just needed to claim that you had specific skills, and if you were good enough, then people would pay you for it. We talk about a woman named Linda Hazard, and if her last name isn't a warning sign, I don't know what is. That picture of her on Wikipedia, that's what should be a warning sign. She is also known as the starvation doctor. So she claimed to be this doctor who had a revolutionary way to heal people. And it was healing people through fasting. If you look at biblically what fasting means, it's an opportunity to draw closer to God. And these times in your life, this is when you get extra spiritual, is when you're fasting. So she drew on that to go, whatever ailments you have, fasting will fix it. You're still not feeling better. You have to fast more. Oh, you're still not feeling better? Well, how about you give me power of attorney just so I can make sure that while you're getting through this, you'll be better on the other side. So you just give, trust me, give me power of attorney. Oh, look, you're dead and I have all your money. She was very much motivated by the financial gain, by getting the money, swindling these people out of their possessions and eventually their lives, because these people would starve themselves to death at her suggestion. There is a man's diary who has become famously attached to Linda Hazard, and he talked about what they ate, what they did, how they prayed, and some of his symptoms. The last month, he would have three oranges, and that's it for the day. He's having very little food because if he just fasted enough, he would get through all of these aches and pains he's also reporting because he believed her. She continuously watched people die under her quote-unquote care so that she can get the money from them. Next on the list let me tell you what, the 60s, 70s, and 80s were a hot time for serial killers. I'm thinking this is because we started being able to identify people as serial killers a little bit more. 
We were able to connect the dots with crime databasing and the FBI coming to the forefront of criminal investigations in a way that we had never seen before. With the advance in technology, with news becoming more national faster, it was easier to find out about stuff like this. This next one we're going to talk about has probably the best name for a serial killer I have ever seen. The Giggling Granny or Giggling Grandma. Her actual name is Nanny Doss. She killed four of her husbands, her mother, her sister, her grandson, and her mother-in-law. Okay, that last one I can kind of get. She was also known as the Lonely Hearts Killer and the classic Black Widow. Her favored method of killing was poisoning by arsenic. In the second half of the 20th century, we figured out how to trace arsenic in the blood system, and it became a far less popular way to kill somebody after that point. She was eventually sentenced to life in prison after pleading guilty in 1955, and then she died of leukemia in 1965. We're going to hop over the pond to England. The acid bath murders was done by John George Haig. We are talking the 1940s. He would basically kill people and then try to get rid of the body by bathing them in acid because he thought that literally no body, no crime. When he discovered that that was not an actual defense, he then claimed to have consumed the blood of his victims in an attempt to get at the insanity plea. Fun fact here, uh, if you notice that his name is John George Haig, Serial killers don't just have three names. People say of all the serial killers have three names. The reason why they're referred to by their full names is to actually prevent any mix-up with anybody that shares their name. Yeah, that's not necessarily the kind of notoriety you want. Now that we're in England, let's go way back in time to what is probably the serial killer that everyone knows. We're talking London 1888, this is the era of top hats and canes and fancy gentlemen and sailors. And Jack the Ripper. This is probably one of the most notorious unsolved murders out there. There have been claims fairly recently of them having figured out who it is with extra evidence and this and that, but I think unless you invent a time machine, we'll never really know for sure. Jack the Ripper was known for killing women, usually prostitutes. There are the canonical five, ones that are pretty sure all connected to Jack the Ripper, took place within a mile of each other. Yeah, the spree lasted from the 31st of August to November 9th of 1888 for those five. There are an additional six that investigators think might have been linked to the same, but they're pretty sure these five specifically were the same killer. Back to America, the 70s. This is when the term serial killer was coined. It wasn't one case in particular, but several. The FBI worker was Robert Ressler, who was investigating several of these kinds of crimes that you can tell is the same person. If you want to look into that, Robert Ressler, he's the one who coined the term serial killer. Let's look into the killers of the time. One of the first that anybody will think of if they're thinking 1970s serial killer is going to be Ted Bundy. 
because he did not confine himself to an area, but the entire United States. Yeah, every time suspicion would start to grow around him for something or other, he would just move out of state and he would be a brand new person in Utah and then Florida. It took a long time and mostly victim profiles to connect all of these dots of this trail of bodies he's left across the continental U.S. Speaking of victim profiles, Ted Bundy is the exception. Most serial killers don't have a specific victim profile. They may target more vulnerable populations, but they aren't looking for someone who is specifically looking a same way. Ted Bundy was different. He did have a victim profile. Most of his victims were brunette who parted their hair down the middle. So it's a very specific note there that helped track who he was. Another little fun fact here, for me personally, my grandmother was almost kidnapped by Ted Bundy. She lived in Utah at the time he was in Utah, and she was driving home from work one night and had this yellow VW pull up beside her and try to signal her to pull off the side of the road that she had a flat tire. That was one of the things that he would use to get women alone. She knew because of my grandpa well enough to say, no, there's nothing wrong with my car. I don't have a flat tire that would feel different. And she just kept driving. And then the next day on the news, she saw his vehicle as the you know bolo, we're looking for this vehicle attached to some murders that are happening here in Utah. And she said, that's the car that tried to get me to pull off to the side of the road. Creepy. She's a brunette who parted her hair down the middle. A name that we don't know, but everybody's heard of, is the Zodiac Killer. This is a fascinating one when it comes to the psychology of the person who committed these crimes. We're talking the 60s and 70s in the northern half of California, San Francisco area. His first couple of victims were all located at Lover's Lane kind of places. In the dark, in the distance, remote, couples would drive to, you know, Lake Berryessa, park in a certain place. The Zodiac Killer would show up and kill them. The interesting thing about the Zodiac Killer to me is his need to be adored in a way. He wrote letters and left little calling cards. He was toying with the investigators as well as getting off on killing these people. He would not just write letters and toy with them. He would write in ciphers and he would say, if you can solve this cipher, it has my name. That one, by the way, is still technically unsolved. There have been some people who think they've cracked it, but they can't be for sure. It's interesting to see someone who desperately wanted the attention, but was also so good at not revealing himself. He was a Moriarty that really needed a Sherlock. He wanted someone to intellectually be on his level, to think what he's thinking. Interesting little fact about this. I think this was in a true crime podcast called Murder Squad that I I heard about this particular aspect of it. He could have been caught. So there was one time where he murdered a taxi cab driver. Some kids looking out a window saw it, called the police, 
and they got the description of the person wrong. I think they said that he was a black man or the dispatcher heard that he was a black man. Something went wrong in translation there. So that when they went looking for the murderer who was walking away from this murdered taxi cab, they passed someone they later realized fit the actual description and they had stopped and talked with him. Wow. One place I recommend going if you're going to research more into the Zodiac Killer is a podcast called Monster, the Zodiac Killer. I think that was the second season. The first season they talked about the Atlanta child murders. That was a very good podcast. They talked to investigators. They talked to people who were involved in the case, family of victims, and kind of explore the options of who might have been the Zodiac Killer. We talked about the Zodiac Killer's love of publicity. We're going to hop across the country back to New Orleans into 1918, 1919. We're talking the height of Jazz, Dixieland. The Axeman of New Orleans thrived off of public panic. That was his thing. Wasn't he the one that went into people's homes and just murdered them with their own axe? Yeah, in their sleep oftentimes. So he would break into the back door of somebody's house. Often they were Italian immigrants in some way and kill them with their own stuff in the house, often an axe. There was some speculation in there that it was kind of mob connected because of the fact that most of the victims were Italian immigrants. He was another one who contacted the public and contacted the press, daring the world to catch him. He specifically made a point of saying, I will not kill anybody who's playing jazz in the house. On a specific night in particular. So he sent a letter and essentially created the first block party because everybody was in their houses listening to jazz because they were so afraid that if they didn't, they would get murdered. So I'm going to read this letter. Quote, Hottest Hell, March 13, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Yosef, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better if they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think that there is any need of such a warning, for I feel the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most horrible murderer, 
which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished I could pay a visit to your city every night, at will I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy, the Axeman. This blows my mind. Because, especially at the end there, he switches to a very old form of speech with the wilts and these. The writing in this is incredible, which I hate to say of a murder, but really, the writing in this letter is incredible. For the record, there was a lot of jazz music played that night, and there were no murders reported for that night. And the Axemen never returned. So there are different kinds of serial killers. We just listed a bunch of them, and almost every single one of them falls into the category of almost true serial killer. On top of serial killers, that term, you also have mass murderers who are technically serial killers because they killed a bunch of people, but their murder all happened in one incident. That has become more common in modern days than it was back in the old days, where it was a little harder to kill people faster. If you purchase either of our books tomorrow, you'll get a good idea of what a spree killer looks like. Both of our villains in our novels are spree killers in a way. They are killing with an end game. They're just going from place to place to place and getting as many kills in, racking as many as they can in, in a fairly short amount of time. But they have a larger goal in mind. So instead of being the serial killer that kills for opportunity... Because this person, they're in a dark place, no one's around, I feel like killing, I'm going to attack and kill them. It's, this person is in the way of my objective, I'm going to attack and kill them. I've always said that if I became a serial killer, it would probably be this next kind, that is the angel of death. These are your doctors, your nurses, the ones that kill in their mind out of mercy. I believe Sweeney Todd falls into this category because he had this mentality of death is a relief for everybody. Either you deserve it or I'll set you free from this terrible world. I believe there was a nursing home caretaker in Japan that was arrested in the last 10 years or so for something similar. Also one in the last 20 years in Canada. The motives of serial killers are placed in four categories. Visionary, 
mission-oriented, hedonistic, and power control. So power and control, those are your people who kill because it makes them feel powerful. They want to exert their control, their power over someone else. Your mission-oriented, those are your spree killers like the ones in our books. Hedonistic killers are your thrill seekers, the ones that do it because it feels good. Unfortunately, a lot of the times it fuels their sexual drive. These people are sometimes the sociopaths or the people with their emotional capacity turned way down. And this is a way to feel anything, which gives them that rush that they're looking for. And then your visionary killers are the ones who think they've been sent by God or some higher power to do their work. The Axemen of New Orleans. The psychology and science of serial killers is very fascinating. There is a generally accepted theory about three signs that indicate a possible serial killer in the making. The signs are bedwetting, arson, and cruelty to animals. And the bedwetting is bedwetting past the normal age where you would have stopped that. But again, this does not guarantee that a person is going to be a serial killer. You can have somebody that fits all three of these categories and they grow up to be a normal person. This is more looking at the trends in the opposite direction of what do the serial killers that we see have in common. And there's also a lot of research into the brain scans of people who have antisocial personality disorder. This disorder is not just being an introvert. This is the technical term for your sociopathic personalities. In brain scans of these people, there's entire areas of their brains that don't really light up, that aren't active in PET scans. When people talk about mental disorders connected to serial killers, you're going to see a lot of sociopaths, which are the people who are Vulcan-esque in that they don't experience emotion or if they do, the volume's turned way down, so they have a hard time feeling emotion. You'll have the psychopaths who are disconnected from reality in a lot of ways. And a lot of the traits of a serial killer, they will display a lack of empathy, a lot of egocentrism, and a lot of manipulativeness. And a very good example of this is Ted Bundy. There are a couple more names if you wanted to continue your research after this episode that I wanted to drop that are fun to investigate in your own way. These aren't necessarily serial killers, but they're fascinating cases. If you've ever talked to anybody or experienced any time on the United States East Coast, I guarantee you've heard the name Lizzie Borden. There's a more or less nursery rhyme about her. I have heard this little song. It's kind of along the same lines of Ring Around the Rosie, where it's that creepy child's playground song that is absolutely horrifying when you listen to the message. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Very creepy. Now let's go to a country we haven't visited yet, and this is Australia. There's a woman in the, I believe, early 2000s who killed her husband, skinned him, decapitated him, cooked his meat, and then set it out to serve to her adult children. 
Officers found the decapitated head in a stew. They found his skin hanging from a meat hook in one of the rooms in the house. And just totally creepy, totally weird. Her name is Catherine Knight. The last one I want to briefly mention. This guy named Carl Tanzler had fallen in love with a young woman. Unfortunately, she passed from tuberculosis at the young age of 21. But his love didn't stop there. He raided the mausoleum where she was buried and kept her body with him for the next seven years. And he was preserving the body the entire time. He would dance with it by the fire. He'd set it up at the dinner table, sleep in the bed with it. He was very much in love with this young woman for almost a decade after she had passed. And on that image, happy Halloween. That is super creepy and super gross. So if you are interested in learning more about these, there are several podcasts that I recommend. I already mentioned the Monster podcast. The Murder Squad is another really good one. A lot of my knowledge from these other ones that I've talked about came from Stuff You Missed in History Class. They are a fascinating source for a lot of different things, and especially this time of year. Like us, they enjoy celebrating the macabre, and we get a lot of serial killer stories from them. And in general, if you want to learn more about investigations, murders, another podcast I recommend is Small Town Dicks. It does get detailed, so if you are squeamish, I don't recommend that, but otherwise very good at learning more about the process of finding and convicting killers. On the landing page for this episode, we will have links to how to find those podcasts so you can continue learning more from this strange, weird place. And the reason why we talk about it is to help you in your pursuits of writing. So if you, like us, wrote a modern day story with killers, you can get the psychology right. You can get the personalities right. If you're looking for a good way to develop your bad guy and make them bad, serial killers are are a great way to have somebody be terrible but make perfect sense. I hope you have a great Halloween and go out there, write, enjoy yourself, embrace NaNoWriMo, and write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. 